following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenv.com. It is a delight to be back with you, friends. Um, and uh, some things have changed since I've been here last. You've painted the place. It looks so super nice, very, very nice. It's actually cool in here. Remember the last time I was here in the summer, it was quite warm, so a lovely, uh, a lovely remodel. And um, I've heard you've particularized since I've been here as well, and even adding more deacons and elders. How wonderful is that? I'm going to bring a passage to you this morning. It should come up there. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to it if you desire. It's Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 41, or to chapter or 26 to 40. It is, uh, it is a wonderful passage for a church now particularized, ready to move forth in the community as you have been doing with the gospel of grace. So let's give our attention then to the reading and the preaching of this particular part of God's word. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was standing, uh, reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer was silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say? Is it about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through... He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. It's supposed to be up there, my response. Yeah, the grass withers and the flowers fall. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us today through that word and by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to behold beautiful things today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I have a couple of daughters, one uh, uh, that's older than the other, of course, about by about five years. When my oldest daughter was in upper elementary school age, my youngest daughter was in lower elementary school age, we decided to take a, f- a family vacation to Washington, D.C. and to look at some monuments there and museums and other things. And this was long before Uber and long before uh, Airbnb. So we were in a hotel and we utilized the the uh, train system, the subway system there in Washington going from place to place. One particular day we had visited a couple of museums. The kids were tired. We were ready to get back to the hotel. So we made our way to the central stop in the uh, subway system. It's two levels. The, the first level, the tracks run east and west and the, the lower level they run north and south. And this is a, a transfer station for people trying to get to different places out into the suburbs and even back down into the city. We left the, the museum late in the evening. Rush hour was taking place. We didn't even realize that until the elevator doors opened up in the bottom level. And this place, when I say it was packed, it was packed. I have never seen so many people. And so we turned to the kids. We grabbed hold of their hands and we said, don't let go. Follow me. I had uh, Melissa's hand, and uh, that's my oldest daughter. Jennifer had Allison's hand, my youngest daughter. Allison and and Jennifer were in front of me, and we were making our way to the open door of the train, and suddenly I lost grip on Melissa. I screamed at Jennifer to stop. I turned around, all these people trying to get in. I'm trying to move them out of the way, and I see Melissa knelt down over this little boy who couldn't have been more than about four years old, And he was doing all he could do to hold back the tears. His little lip was just quivering like this. Melissa was sitting down on his level talking to him. We made our way over there, surrounded him, and began conversation. What's your name, little boy? Jake, he said. Jake, where's your mommy and your daddy? He tells us the story of how they were trying to get on the train, and suddenly he lost grip of his mommy's hand, and the door closed, and mommy and the rest of the family went this way, and he was stuck here. He didn't know. And we're asking question after question, and we say, Jake, listen, we are not going to leave you. We're going to stay with you until your mommy and your daddy or whoever gets back, okay? And I looked up, and over the tracks, there's this little hut. And there's a staircase that goes up this way and a staircase that goes down that way on the other side. It's a police officer hut. So we take little Jake up the steps, and we're explaining to the police officer what happened. And suddenly we look up, and here comes a train coming in from the other side of the tracks. The doors open up, and this blood-curdling scream, Jake! And we say, there's Mom right there. And as soon as that door opens, she's running everywhere. We're up on the top, waving our hands, saying, he's up here, he's up here. And there she comes in this white blouse with all of these big flowers on it, just like Jake had described to us. She falls into his arms, and they're hugging. She tells us how she and her sister are there. They've had five children between the two of them, and somebody broke through their grip to get on the train, and the doors closed. She had to go all the way to the first stop, get off, go on to the other side, wait for a train to get all the way back. Seemed like an eternity. And she began to thank us profusely for taking care of him. And then Jennifer and I just said something along the lines of, well, you know what, we were, just, we were just at the right place at the right time. I wonder if you've ever had that kind of an experience where you're at the right place at the right time. You couldn't imagine not being right where you are 
to be confronted with what you're confronted with, to do what it is that the Lord has called you to do. I think we do this a lot of times with our, the blessing that we have been given in the sharing of our faith. Many times we, we kind of cling to chance instead of resting in the fullness of the sovereignty of God, even in salvation. That God is sovereign to the, to the end. He, he brings his children savingly to himself. He who began a good work in us will see it to the day of completion. But he is also sovereign over the means to the end. I oftentimes used to say that God gives me divine appointments. When I enter into a, a relationship or a conversation with someone about the hope that I have in Christ, I say God has given me a divine appointment. But this passage, I think, is really a divine positioning instead of a divine appointment. Because not only is Philip at the right place at the right time, right where he should be, but the Ethiopian eunuch has been positioned to be at the right place at the right time so that Philip can speak of the hope a believer can speak of the hope that he has to an unbeliever whom God is calling savingly to himself utilizing people like you and me to speak of the hope that we've been singing about that he saved me he lavished me with his great love and affection and now uses people like us the means to the end to speak of the hope that we have as he calls people to himself. You'll notice in this passage that Luke goes back and forth between the angel of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord. He does that for this very reason, to show that God is sovereign. He divinely positions his people in places to be the means to the very end of bringing his elect savingly to himself, those that he has called before the foundation of the world. So let's look at this text very briefly that way, first through the eyes of the believer and then the eyes of the unbeliever. Now just for context, so you'll know because I've snatched this particular passage out of thin air for you, you haven't been studying or reading the entire book. But you will remember where we are in redemptive history here. Stephen, one of the first deacons, along with Philip, the gentleman that's mentioned here, another one of the deacons, Stephen has now been stoned to death. He has prayed, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And he closes his eyes and he falls asleep. But then with this persecution now on the church or the way, as the group is now being referred to, there is a scattering out of Jerusalem. They are leaving Jerusalem where thousands or hundreds, we don't know numbers, multitudes, Scripture says, are coming savingly to Jesus Christ. So what starts, you know, with 120, that becomes 3,120 after Peter's uh, sermon. And we keep reading through the book of Acts that this number is getting larger and larger and larger in Jerusalem. And now this persecution comes in the stoning of Stephen, and they are forced out into Samaria and to Judea. And Philip, this guy, one of the deacons, not Philip the apostle, but Philip the deacon, is preaching the good, the good news, the gospel of grace in, in, uh, in Samaria, and thousands of people are coming savingly to Christ. The, the way is exploding. And now suddenly an angel of the Lord appears to Philip, and he says, I want you to take the road out of the south, out of Jerusalem, out into the desert. You go, what? I mean, 
we're reading all of these wonderful things that are happening in Samaria and how all of these people are coming savingly to Christ through this guy who's preaching the good news and God is going to take him out of there and send him out into the desert for one guy that we know of. But Philip doesn't know that yet, does he? The angel of the Lord appears to Philip, the believer, and he says, you need to go and look at Philip's response. He has no idea, no explanation at all as to why he is leaving Samaria to go out into the desert, but he gets up and he goes. He he rise and go, and Philip gets up and he goes. Friends, here's what's happening. Back in chapter 1, remember Jesus has been crucified, now raised to new life. Jesus appears to his apostles and he says, stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave until the Spirit comes upon you. And when the Spirit comes upon you, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So what has been happening here as the way has been growing in Jerusalem, persecution comes that God uses by his sovereign choice, divine power, to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria where scores are coming savingly to himself. And now here's the beginning. Philip goes out into the desert to an Ethiopian on his way back to Ethiopia, the beginning of the ends of the earth. God is sovereign, divinely positioning people like you and me in places like New Braunfels for the sharing of the gospel, the speaking of the hope that we have as he draws individuals savingly to himself. Look at these two individuals, Philip, Philip now the deacon, Philip not an educated man, but Philip one who responds to the call of the Lord and an Ethiopian eunuch. We're told that now. This guy is an Ethiopian, which is on the west side of the Red Sea, south of of Egypt, where modern-day Sudan spills all the way down into Ethiopia. That would be the region then. But he has made a 1,000-mile journey all the way to Jerusalem. He is a God-fearer, but not a God-lover, because he is in search of something. He is moving all the way to Jerusalem to worship God, to worship Yahweh, as we read, and now he is on his way back, another thousand-mile journey back to his hometown, to Ethiopia. He is a eunuch. You know what a eunuch is? One who has been physically altered, but he has made a willful decision to do that because he is now coming into the court of Candace, which is not her name, by the way. That is her title, like we refer to an emperor as Caesar. She is referred to as Candace. She's the queen of Ethiopia. This guy's going to be in charge of all of her treasury, But the king and the queen didn't want any funny business going on in the palace. So if you're not born in the palace, then you make a decision if you're going to work in the palace that you will become a eunuch. So this guy is an educated man. He is a very wealthy man. And look at the difference between the two, he and Philip. But here's my point, friends. There is only one gospel that saves It doesn't matter the skin color. It doesn't matter our education. It doesn't matter our economic status in life. There is only one name under heaven by which humankind can be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. So there is nothing that should divide us in the world in which we live now. All of the barriers that would divide us are broken down in the gospel. 
These two gentlemen now, one who is a believer and one who is about to become a believer in two different states in their life, but it's the one gospel that brings them united together. And such is the case for people like you and me. So look at this then. Now, now uh, he finds out, uh, Philip finally finds out, the Spirit now, in verse 29, the Spirit says to Philip, you go over to the, that chariot and, and join it. And so Philip runs over. He runs over there, friends, because the the chariot is moving. He, he's, he's up in the chariot. And this has not been her chariot, by the way. This is a chariot where he's up seated, probably a covered chariot. And now Philip runs over to the side. He's probably bouncing up and down as he's running. Hey, I see you're reading something there. What are you reading? And the guy says, I'm, I'm reading the prophet Isaiah. I, he understands that. He hears that. Now, could he have been teed up a better, uh, a better home run than this right here? Isaiah 53, if you were told to go share the gospel with someone and all you could use was the Old Testament, this would be the very first passage that I would turn to. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what he just read. Now as, now as he stands silent before his shearers persecuted, this is what he's reading. He is reading the gospel in the Old Testament, which simply reminds us Jesus is on every page, Old Testament and New Testament. And so Philip runs alongside. He hears what he's reading, and here it is, the gospel presentation. Now, friends, listen very carefully. In our Reformed tradition, in our heritage, clinging to our, our, our doctrines that we have from, from Scripture and using secondary means like our Confession of Faith. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, tells us to let Scripture speak for Scripture. And so we go to other places in the Bible to help shine a light on the place that we're reading and studying. If you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, you would read something like this, my paraphrase that their eunuchs are not allowed in any part, any part of the temple. Not even the, the court of the Gentiles, not even Solomon's colonnade. This man, friends, made a 1,000-mile journey to Jerusalem and is most likely now shunned by people in Jerusalem, not allowed to even enter Solomon's colonnade, much less the court of the Gentiles or the holy place or the holy of holies. He is now on his way back home where he was in search of something. He's looking. He's a God-fearer but not a God-believer. He wants answers. He's gone all that way. He's been rejected. Can you imagine what this guy is living now? He has to be. He has to be discouraged, in despair, brokenhearted, empty. And he's reading this particular passage like a sheep led to the slaughter, like a lamb before his shearer. He is silent. Do you believe then, friends, do you believe that these two individuals now have been divinely positioned? That this isn't by chance. This isn't by happenstance or by fate. But God has brought not only Philip out of Samaria where wonderful things were happening, but he has now brought this Ethiopian eunuch who is brokenhearted, silent, 
standing there asking, what is this? Why? And now suddenly he's got some guy popping up at the side of his chariot. Hey, I see you're reading Isaiah. Do you know what it means? How can I, he says. How can I unless I have someone to explain it to me? Now notice, notice what we don't read here. Uh, Philip doesn't say, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy said, no, I don't. And then Philip says, well, you've got to go figure it out yourself. You know, I can't tell you what truth is. You've got to find truth yourself. And when you find your truth, then I'm going to have to be tolerant of whatever your truth is. No. He says, let me explain it to you. And beginning with this passage in the Old Testament, the New Testament isn't even written yet, he now unpacks Jesus. He shares Jesus. That's the only answer for truth is found in Jesus. This is what New Braunfels and the surrounding area needs from a church that holds, clings to this, to absolute truth, that we are living it out. And God is divinely positioning us in places where we can speak of this hope that we have. He shares Jesus, the one who is... Uh, rejected so that we could be received, the one who was pierced so that we could be forgiven, the one who died so that we might live. He shares the gospel of Jesus. He must have also shared what Peter was preaching at Pentecost, right? I mean, all of a sudden the guy says, hey, look, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And we have read that in uh, earlier chapter, chapter 4 of the book of, of Acts, where Peter is preaching and he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sin. And so the guy sees some water and he shouts, hey, what would prevent me from being baptized? Well, everything would prevent him from being baptized. He is the CFO of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. He's got an entourage with him. He's not traveling by himself. And they're going to get back to Ethiopia where they're going to say, hey, this CFO you got, he's a bit crazy. He, he got down out of his chariot. He got some guy up in his chariot. Then they got down and he walked down and started throwing some water on him. And it just, this is one weird dude that you got running your your treasury here. He had everything that would prevent him. And yet now, friends, here's what we capture. What's implied here in this passage that Luke gives to us is this man now suddenly believes. He's not a God-fearer anymore, but now he is a God-believer. And he wants to mark, he wants to show the world being marked with water baptism that he believes that Jesus is the only way that Jesus is the answer to all that he has been looking for. Friends, let me say this to you. You know, God can do this. God can do this. He gives us this account. It was done right here, right? I mean, you can get in an elevator. You could share your faith in 30 seconds, and someone the Lord could bring savingly to, to himself. It could happen. Before the doors open again, you could share the gospel briefly, and someone would believe but that's not the common way that God does it. God most often does that through our building of relationships where we befriend individuals and slowly begin to speak of the hope that we have. I read an article a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Tim Keller wrote, he was, it was going to be a two-part article, but he got sick again before he wrote the second one and then died. But the first one, he talks about lemonade on porches. 
and how the porch, how people used to sit out on the porch in the, uh, in the early years and, and were, knew everything that was going on in the neighborhood. And as people passed by, they entered into uh, a discussion as, as individuals passed by. In his article, he says the porch is like in the middle between the street, those that would be unbelievers, and the living room, those that are in the family, in the body, uh, those that are believers. And so we spend time on the porch where we are inviting people up onto the porch into our life as we live the gospel in front of them in hopes that God is bringing them savingly into the living room. That's how he most often does it. The person sitting in the desk next to you at school or at work, the person living right across the street, right next door, in addition to the person standing in the HEB line. See, our response then, friends, is the call for us to go is simply a call of obedience. He is positioning me, not that I can go and I can claim someone for Christ, but that I am simply saying, Lord, you have put me right here, divine positioning right here for a purpose. Who is it that you are calling for me to speak of the hope that I have in Jesus? It's a beautiful picture. There are two things, two red herrings here. Let me just clarify these for you uh, so you'll know, and then we'll, then we'll, be, we'll be done. Uh, the first is, is, uh, is this. You, you, you want to you really jack with somebody. Uh, you want to make someone, you want to get them, yeah. You say, hey, would you turn in your Bible and stand and read uh, Acts 8, verse 37? And they stand up and they turn and they begin. Whoop. There is no verse 37. We go from 36 to 38 in our Bible. Verse 37 is actually in your footnote. The footnote there that simply says that, do you understand this? And he says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not in the early manus the Greek manuscripts, the very first, the original ones. Verse 37 is not there. But what is implied there that we already read, that now he sees water and wants to be baptized, the church in the latter uh, translations uh, into Greek, verse 37 was added because it's the creed for the church. What do we require for those uh, uh, coming in, uh, into the, the body? And remember where we are in redemptive history, that we've had, we've had the gospel accounts, Jesus' teaching, and now we have the epistles, the letters to individuals and to the churches, and what stands in the middle is the book of Acts, and the book of Acts answers the question, what is normative? So we are moving now from Israel to new Israel. All these individuals are coming savingly to faith. They're... they're grown adults now making professions of faith so we read this is why we read this promise now is for you and it's for your children and your children's children so we see these individuals coming now into the new Israel Gentiles coming savingly to faith and so the church just puts the creed what it is that we believe what are we calling people to do repent and be baptized and then these promises are for you and for your family your children your children's children the second little red herring there is this is not the Luke is not seeking to give us the mode of baptism all right I, I've entered into dialogue with individuals and they want to just sit and argue argue the mode well he was dunked and if you don't believe in getting dunked then you're not really baptized they're in the desert, 
They're in the desert. There's not much water in the desert. I was just talking to Derek about a dream he had about he needed to baptize someone and all he had was a mud puddle. That's kind of the same thing. I mean, there, and it, it's not the mode of baptism of immersion because if that were the case, well, it says he went down into the water and he came up out of the water. Well, it says Philip and the, and the eunuch both went down into the water and came up out of the water. If this is a proof text for immersion, then both of them were baptized they simply just stepped down off the bank into what body of water they had. It's not a proof text. Here's what Luke wants us to capture. That God brings us, draws us savingly to himself, and he even uses means, people like you and me, to do that. And believing as he opens our eyes to behold the beauty of his gospel, now with everything I want to be obedient and live, even as we confessed today, I want to live not after the lusts of my own flesh, but live in the gospel of grace that he gives to us. Two responses then. They come up, and suddenly Philip is gone. I don't know. I don't know, so don't ask. <laughs> I don't know what that means except for he's gone, and now he finds himself in, in Azotus, wherever that may be, but he's on his way to Caesarea, and look what it says. Every town that he moves through from Azotus to Caesarea, he preaches the gospel. He does, he does the same thing, whether it's a, a, a group of a thousand or whether it's a group of one. His response is to share the gospel with all who would listen. He finds himself in Caesarea. We don't read about Philip again until chapter 20. 24, 25, where his four daughters, he's living still in Caesarea with his four daughters who prophesy. And then we also have the response of the Ethiopian eunuch. He looks up, Philip is gone, and now he continues on his way rejoicing. Now, friends, let me, let me have just a little bit of create, creative license, if you will. It, it doesn't say this in the passage, but wouldn't this be a natural fit? He has Isaiah he has been reading the prophecy of Isaiah. Now that Philip is gone, wouldn't you think that he would continue to be reading the prophet Isaiah? If that's true, then this is what he would read two chapters later. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself with the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, and they shall never be cut off. That's the gospel, friends not ours to earn or deserve, and not ours to lose when he brings us savingly to himself, then we are his for all eternity. Sweet. When I was an intern at, or in seminary in, in St. Louis, I was an intern at Kirk of the Hills Presbyterian Church. Dr. Wilson Benton was the pastor there, wonderful, wonderful man. He has a daughter named Paige. You may have heard of her, Paige Benton Brown. She does a lot of uh, women's ministry within the PCA. She's a wonderful speaker. And she tells this story. I tell it from her perspective because it's typical Paige. She said when, when she was young, she and her sister Laura would go with her mother, Pam, down to 
uh, Mississippi to visit their grandparents. And granddad got up early every morning when Paige was up and he would do his ritual with her. He would pick her up and put her on the counter in the, in the bathroom and he would put shaving cream in her hand and she would smear it all over his face as he cut his whiskers off. And then he would take her outside and hold her up by her ankles and she would grab the newspaper out of the front yard. He would spin her around and carry her back in, put her down on the kitchen counter, hand her two pieces of toast that she would put in the toaster and push the button down. She took the spoonful of sugar and she stirred it into grandpa's coffee. She took the eggs and opened them up into the skillet. Typical Pam, she's telling the story, she'd say, and then I would stop and I would think to myself, what does this man do when I am not here to help him? And then she realized one particular day, he doesn't need me to do any of this. He could do it so much faster if he did it himself. But he wants to show his affection for me to allow me to accompany him and do things that he wants done. And isn't that what we're reading right here? God doesn't need us to share our faith to bring people to himself. But he uses us to do that, to show us his affection for us, how much he loves us, that we might be continually be reminded of what it is that he has done for us that I long for others to experience that very same thing. May it be so through the ministry of Hope Presbyterian Church. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your gospel. Thank you that you seal it to us. You give it to us as a free gift. And now believing that gospel, Father, would you allow us to be obedient to your command, seeing every place that we are in as a divine positioning, a place where you have put us to use us as the means to your end, bringing someone into a deeper relationship or into that relationship for the very first time. Would you do that, please, for your glory's sake?